This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, well, welcome back to UC Santa Barbara's Distinguished Lecture Series. I want to again thank our sponsors, Binoc, Faber, Archibald, and Spray. Again, this is the first quarter that we've had an official sponsor. Um, we're getting great exposure um, in the TMP program, and we love to have sponsors that are actually helping entrepreneurs every day, um, as uh, that uh, law firm does. So getting their name out on the Central Coast is um, the least we can do for all of the support they've given us here at the TMP. We have a very interesting speaker today. Zohar Ziv is here. Why is he interesting? Well, I bring in a lot of software executives, a lot of technical founders, a lot of people that write code. I bring in salespeople. I bring in marketing people. I brought in product development people. It's harder in the, in the startup world, in the entrepreneurial world, to find someone who's come up through the finance track. Oftentimes, the words financial entrepreneur is a bit of an oxymoron, because oftentimes, the people that are attracted to finance are not necessarily um, risk takers. They're not very entrepreneurial. You're going to see from Zohar's background that he is very entrepreneurial. Even though some of, his, some of the companies he's worked at have been very large, he's been very much a game changer and an entrepreneur, so acting as an entrepreneur within a larger organization. He has 25 years of executive management experience, and when I say he has a diverse background, he has a diverse background. He's worked in public companies, private companies. He's been in companies that have experienced rapid growth. He's worked in mature companies that had more steady growth. He's grown companies through mergers and acquisitions. Um, and he's also just um, grown companies the old-fashioned way by growing revenue year after year. In 2015, he retired. So just this year, he retired from the chief operating officer position at Decker's Outdoor Corporation. You probably know some of their foot, uh, footwear fashion brands, such as Ugg, uh, Tiva, amongst many others. He joined Decker's in, 20, uh, in 2006 as the CFO, as the chief financial officer. And one year later, he was promoted to the COO job, which is really the next step up. You often um, have purview over all of the operational aspects of a company, not just the financial um, operations. At Decker's, he helped grow that company from 250 million, substantial, right? 250 million in 07. He grew that all the way up to 1.8 billion when he left nine years later. And he was part of transforming that company. Um, there's a lot of change that happens between 250 million and almost 2 billion, uh, believe me, and it doesn't come uh, easily, it doesn't come without some pain. Prior to Decker, Zohar was a CFO for eight years at various diversified companies. Again, various. What do I mean by that? Marketing services, personal, uh, a company that sold personalized souvenirs, a company that did hair care products, a company that was involved in multimedia systems, and another one that did medical supplies. Those are all different customer bases, different market segments, different go-to-market strategies, different value props. It's not easy to go from um, companies that are dra that drastically different if you're not entrepreneurial, if you're not willing to be flexible and um, understand the core similarities that every business has. Prior to that 10-year run, uh, he was uh, CFO for eight years, oh, excuse me, for um, 10 years with an um, international fluid transfer equipment company. He was actually treasurer. Uh, that company had 20, operated in 20 different um, countries, and 60% of its revenue was international. So a great opportunity for him to not only learn what it's like to run a business here domestically, but to run a business in 20 different uh, countries. He's worked on leverage buyouts, he's worked on um, IPOs, and he's done over 25 mergers and acquisition transactions. And in the process, he's raised over $600 million. It's not all 
hard work. It's not all um, financial work uh, for Zohar. He's also given back to the community. In uh, 2014, he was on the board, um, sorry, from 2008 to 2014, he was on the board of the Outdoor Industry Association, where he also served as the vice chairperson of that organization. For two years, he was also the co-chairperson of the Malibu High School Governance Council, so getting involved um, at the uh, high school level. He earned his accounting degree here in California at Cal State Northridge and his MBA in international management uh, from the American Graduate School of International Management run by Thunderbird. He is recently retired, as I mentioned, and I can tell you that here in Santa Barbara, all the nonprofits are salivating to get some of his time and attention. Whenever you have an executive of his talent that's now willing to put his time, effort, and energy into the nonprofit sector, everybody wants to benefit from that. And so he's involved in a number of nonprofits here in town, even since he retired in January. He was born in Israel, lived there for 22 years, also lived for a couple years in Asia, so he has a very much a worldview about business. He's been in this country um, ever since then, met his wife here in California, and again, not just successful professionally, I just listed incredible professional accomplishments. He's also very successful personally. He's lucky enough to have two adult children that live here in Santa Barbara with him. I think that speaks volume for how they feel about their dad, and they want to be um, here in town with him. It's wonderful to have your family close by. I can tell you, getting the stage of life I'm in, having your children um, close by is a wonderful thing, and I think that's a sign of success. Um, And he's um, still with the same wonderful woman that he met all those many years ago. Let's welcome Zohar to our class. Thank you. Good to see you. Thank you, guys. I don't know about you guys. I'm kind of exhausted, so I think I'm going to go to a student question. No, I'm kidding. I'm exhausted just listening. I to know. It. Golly, and I edited out stuff. I mean, come on. You've done too much. You need to stop. That's why I retired. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you're probably busier now than you than you were when you were quote working. Um, I wanted to start. A, really talking about your, your past. And so growing up in Israel, mm-hmm. and a lot of children of immigrants, and this is one reason why we're blessed in this country, a lot of children of immigrants and immigrants themselves come here and they, they're entrepreneurs. They start companies, they start businesses. So I'm curious to hear, how did your experiences in Israel growing up there impact your desire to be so entrepreneurial here and to be so flexible and jumping around into so many different um, opportunities? Well, you know, gr- growing up in Israel, it's a... Um when I was growing up, it was very, very, very interesting time. Um, that we, I was, my parents are from Yemen originally. Until recently, not many people right. knew about Yemen. Now it's in the news, right. you know, right. all the time. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, my mom, that I owe two people in my life where I'm at today, and one is both of them are women, by the way, my mom and my wife. Mm-hmm. And my mom, there were eight kids, and only three survived. Five of them died. Wow. And she immigrated, he and my dad, they immigrated to Israel. And we were basically the minority of Israel. But she had the foresight, and she moved us to a neighborhood of European Jews. And she gave us the exposure to see a different kind of life, better schools and things like that. So that, that showed me and that gave me the drive to achieve. And I wanted basically what my friends had, mm-hmm. because we didn't have it. Right. We were very poor. Right. So that, I think that drive itself... You know, gave me the the desire, you know, to, to 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 succeed. But growing up in Israel, where at that time, you know, I was my dad was in four wars. Mm-hmm. I was in I was in the Israeli Marine. I was in the Yom Kippur War. You got to be very very flexible and adaptable to situ- to the different situations. 
So I think that trait allows you wherever you go to have this adaptability. And I think because you don't, you don't know what, what leads the next day in, in Israel, you also live to the moment and you try to capture opportunities. And I think that was a big you know, key to success when I came here. Right. Well, I know you, you we're going to talk about your journey. You like to call it the unplanned journey. Like what, what's the, what do you mean by that? Do you want to describe a little bit about... Um, well, I, I kind of phrased it and talked about it the first time when they asked me to come and talk about, you know, my career, how I got to where I am. You know, I came in 40 years ago as a backpack. And I started thinking about it. And I'm, you know, by training, as you, as, as you mentioned, I'm a financial person. I'm in charge of operations. You've got to plan. You've got to be organized. And I'm very, very structured and very planned. My kids call me, you know, a computer with a personality. <laughs> but I've also learned in life that you cannot plan your life. Right. If you was asked me, and if you go, and I think I gave you a copy of that, all the way from where we were, we were supposed to be living in the slums of Tel Aviv. My mom was out of that. That wasn't planned. I wasn't planned to go to college, you know, and I, and I came. Even you mentioned I met my wife here. I met my wife really in Asia. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. That wasn't planned, you know. And talk about two different people. Here I was, I was stationed in Kathmandu, Nepal, in 1974. And here I was. You know, Israeli, I barely spoke English. I met my wife from the U.S. She's not, you know, I was born Jewish. She was not Jewish. We met, we fell in love. I followed her over here. I end up here. I was going to still go back to Israel. Mm-hmm. And I'm still here. And through the career also, as you've talked about, you know, and we'll talk more about, you know, how it is. Every time I planned, okay, I'm going to be here for X amount of years. I'm going to be in that position. Right. Things change all the time. Right. So that's why I call it the unplanned journey. Well, I always tell students, be careful when you say, oh, I'm going to move to the Bay Area for two years. Maybe, but I found it's seldom two years. It's always a bit longer. It's hard to plan that, that kind of it's procedure. It's longer. It's shorter. It could be shorter. Right. You know, could, so you never, not work out and you, 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 you never know. Well, you chose, you mentioned Nepal. You chose Nepal at an interesting point in your life. Of all the countries in the world, why did you choose Nepal? Well, I guess maybe I always have kind of the adventure streak. So as I said, I was, I was in the Yom Kippur War. That was in 1973. And when, when we were done with the war, I wanted to see the world. And um, because by then, all my friends, you know, were going to college and stuff like that. I said, I want to take some time off. So I, I applied for the Foreign Service. And I was the head of security. So we were a training course of about 10 people to ask everybody, where do you want to go? And everybody, of course, saying, oh, New York, number one. South you know, France. Los Angeles, <laughs> Paris, you know, all the best places, you know. <laughs> And I said, send me to a place I'll never go on my own. Because I knew I'll come to the U.S. one time, right, you know, right. one day. So I said, we have an opening in Kathmandu. I said, done. I didn't even know where Kathmandu was. <laughs> I had to go home to look at the map, really. 1974, to give you a sense, there were 12 million people. There were only 3,000 cars. <laughs> there was one traffic light in the whole country. It was so undeveloped, but it was an amazing time. Right. And luckily, I met my wife there, but we... we Went to Everest, went to base camp. I mean, incredible adventure. Well, I mean, that's a great message to young people watching this on their computers or sitting here. It's, it's you know, be a yes. Like, take that chance when you're young. I'm not going to go to Kathmandu. If I do, I'm not going to go the way you did and live there for a long time. Right? I'll go as a tourist. And I only get that certain slice of it. Um, so do it when you're young. Um, be, be adventuresome. Right. No, I, you don't I would, typically get more adventuresome as you get older. I would encourage everybody, and I've done it with our kids as well, take advantage of your time right now. Yep. I, 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 was talking, I was speaking to another class here a couple of weeks ago, and someone came to me and said, I'm graduating, I want to take a year off, my parents really don't want me to do it, what do you think? I said, do it. This is the time that you have yeah, it. Yeah. 
you know? And when people tell you, oh, it will hold you back, on the contrary, that experiences you'll never have in, in, in your life and being exposed to different cultures. Right. And that's what I did because I met my wife. She went back to the U.S. and I want to join her. And they said, okay, you have to wait for a year until there is a position open in Los Angeles. And I said, perfect, I'll see you in a year. And I bought a backpack and a backpack all over Asia on $3 a day. <laughs> and that was an incredible ex- learning experience. <laughs> I'm just thinking three dollars a day. Wow! Now that's 1975. So <laughs> okay, so it's 7.50 you know, now. I don't exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 22, 22.50. No, that's pretty remarkable. Well, that shows how your life can change um, overnight. You know, you you go to a place you never heard of, you meet someone, you fall in love. And another speaker um, some time ago went to Spain on a very similar kind of whim. Didn't mm-hmm. speak Spanish. Met a woman. She didn't speak English. He learned Spanish pretty quickly, right? He was motivated. These are the best marriages. I still, my wife and I still cannot communicate. It's perfect. Forty years later. That's I'm going to tell him that. I think he'll probably concur with that. That's, yeah. that's a good one. So I'm going to get the next. I'm going to get the student question in, um, right after this. So you you had a number of jobs. You joined Getty early in your career. Um, and you thought you might be there for the rest of your life at that point. So this is still the 70s. You're still young. That was a time where people did that, right? Yep. You, you right. took a job. Um, and you quickly figured something out. You quickly figured that maybe you weren't the world's greatest accountant. What did you do about that? And this is great for students because oftentimes that first job isn't a great fit. But you've got to do something about that. Yeah. The reason I joined Getty Oil and... It, it, I didn't really have a passion about the oil industry. Right. I, I went, you know, because by the time I went to college, I was 24. And by the time I did my MBA, I was, I was 29 when I graduated. And I needed a job. Yep. So I applied. And Thunderbird, the school I went to, an international graduate school. And it was interesting. What I wanted to do, I wanted to get a job with a multinational corporation, maybe go overseas. And I was, because I was a finance major, I was looking into banks. None of the banks will talk to me. Yeah. They could see that I'm not the banker types. And Getty Oil gave me a job. So I took it because, you know, they gave me a job. And at that time, it doesn't exist anymore today, they had a management training programs. So in the management training programs, they put you for a year, if you're a financial major, in accounting to do it for a year. And after that, you can move to the various departments within the organization. And very quickly, I realized it's a good training. Mm. It's good to know. But I don't know, they counted type. I'll, remember, I'll, I'll never forget it. I came home to my wife. The guy next to me, he's been closing the same books for 30 years. Oh, wow. Day in, day out. Right. And I told my wife, if I'll have to do it you know, for that long, I'll, I'll blow my brains out. Right. It's not, but you know what? But it's not me. Right. It's not, it doesn't mean it's bad. He was very content. Sure. He came at nine. He went home at five. He had no pressure. He enjoyed life. Yep. But that's what he wanted. That wasn't me. So, but you have to, I mean, you have to pay your dues. So I did it for a year. And then they gave you various, op, you know, departments to go to. And I selected to go to internal audit mm-hmm. with Getty. And the reason I selected internal audit, uh, uh, the way also the Getty will run internal audit, you can run it just as strictly as a financial auditing, or you can do it also called, you know, a, a operational type of audit, which you're really more like a consultant. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of fun. Yep. Because you're really being like a consultant, you know, evaluating the various areas of the companies. But what I like about it the most, you really get exposed to all, I mean, Getty was at that time about a five or six billion dollar company. You see all the you know, the, the, the aspect of the company, the various department, you deal with very high-level people. And number one, you're exposing yourself to a lot of areas within the company. You also learn 
the areas that you don't want to be at. Right. So you can say, you know, I really want to come and work for John, or I don't want to work for you in the department. So I thought it was a great, you know, entry uh, to get to another company. Well, I think you touched on, you know, something that's a a huge learning point, which is knowing what you don't want to do is just as important as knowing what you do want to do. And oftentimes just being honest with yourself and being self-aware and saying, hey, the guy next to me, he's perfectly happy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm not that guy, right? I need to find something that is going to make me happy, and this isn't it. All too often, people stay in the same job too long because they're afraid to make that determination. Exactly. We'll take the first uh, student question. What were some of the more difficult areas in which you tried to push growth for the company? How were you able to create such a large growth over the nine-year span? Decker's was a very interesting uh, situation. Uh, in the footwear industry, we say you're one shoe away from being a billion-dollar company. <laughs> You have, and it's true, you have one hot item that everybody wants. Look at Crocs. Mm-hmm. You know, with all due respect. I mean, I know none of you are wearing Crocs, but <laughs> they created an item that within five years they were a billion-dollar company. You know? So everybody is, 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 is looking for that item. And, and Decker's had with, with UGG, which really the growth from Decker's, when we were talking about it, it grew from 250 million to 1.8 billion, it, was, it mainly came from the Ag brand, which is about 85% of the business. And they had, you, you, I'm sure all of you know the Ag with the sheepskin silhouette, and that was a very, very hot item that everybody wanted. So for us, it was, when it comes to the Ag brand, it was really less about you know, creating the growth, because the growth was coming from the demand from the item. It was to control the growth and to grow it in the right direction. And what I mean by that is when you think about, you know, every brand started with an item. You think about Nike. Nike started, you guys are too young, but Nike started in, in the 80s. You remember the running show, the yeah. waffle. Yeah. Nike is now a $27 billion company, you know, or Reebok that started with, with the aerobic shoe. So how do you take it and not just making it, and that's, I think, the fault of, of Crocs, that they just, they were, just focus on one item. And with Deckers, we were trying to expand from a single silhouette to create what we call a lifestyle brand. And making it because when you think about initially, Deckers was mainly females and only the fall. Because you had you know, the sheepskin boot that the, that the young girls were buying in, in, at the fall. And now, today, they ex- we expanded the brand to be a lifestyle brand. They have you know, male, male products for male year-round, about 20% of the business is, is spring you know, versus fall. But also what we're trying to do, we were controlling the, the growth of, of the company by, by controlling the distribution. If we wanted to grow the company, we could have grown it faster. For example, Deckers does not, Ag does not sell at Macy's. And Macy's has over 800 stores. Yep. So if they just wanted to grow the company without caring about the brand, where it will end, we would have sold to, to, to Macy's. But I, I bet you two, three years after we've done it, we would have been, um, you know, um, impacting the brand. But the, the strategy that we were looking also the other brand, like Teva, for example, and the other brand is really to take a brand, Teva style with the universal strap, you know, sandal, to make it also to a lifestyle, a year-round brand. For example, the shoes I'm wearing, these are Teva shoes. You wouldn't think about it as Teva. So these are, these, these are the strategy that we've done to, uh, to grow the company. And just really great entrepreneurial story behind 
you know, Deckers from the very beginning. Actually, we started here in Santa Barbara, if you guys know, from a UC Santa Barbara graduate, a surfer, you know, so all those shoes yep. initially came out of his own experience. He started out with a flip-flop and... He started with, with, he just, Doug just wanted to surf. Yeah. And he was selling, sur- you know, flip-flop for the surfers. And it became very popular. And then the, the, the creator of the Teva brand came to him and asked him to, to make it for them as a licensee. Mm. And that's how it started. Yep. And then they bought the license and, and to counterbalance because the Teva brand was mainly spring and summer. And when they went public and to counterbalance right, right. the demand for Wall Street, right. they bought the Ag brand because Ag brand was full. Mm-hmm. When they bought the Ag brand in 1995, Ag did about $10 million. And now it's over a billion and a half wow. dollars. So they show, but it, yeah, it's all started here in Santa Barbara. Yep. It's a great story for us, and yeah. you guys have stayed here. Um, you've stayed in town and made it work and built a nice big campus. And right. I know that you had a lot, to, a lot to do with that. So let's go back in your career still. So sort of jumping to um, Decker's, you're, you're still young. You're youngish. You're, you're at Borg, and your boss comes to you and says, hey, do you know how to do financial modeling? And like any good entrepreneur, you said, yes. <laughs> and then you proceeded to I can spend figure it out. the entire weekend right. learning how yeah. to model. Yeah. So how did that... Um, how did that impact your career? Because that kind of took you in a little different direction. That's really what kind of gave me the, you know, opened the gate for me to where, to where I am today. What happened is, as you said, I, I, what happened with, with Getty after four years, Getty merged with Texaco. And they offered me positions, but I realized I didn't want to stay in the oil and gas industry. It's really not where my passion and I wanted to get some manufacturing experience. So someone contacted me, a fellow that I met in a conference with Borg Warner, and you know, he hired me, and five months after he hired me, he, he got promoted. So the CFO of that company at that time was trying to recruit someone else to take that position. I just kept, you know, I was five months on the job. I didn't feel that I'm entitled for the position. Right. Five, I mean, five months later, the boss came to me and said, you're doing a good job, you're the manager. So it was nice that he recognized, you know, what, I'm, what I was doing. But then he came to me and said, you know what? We were at that time a subsidiary of Borg Warren Corporation. He said, we want to take the company private. Uh, but we need to build the financial modeling. How are we going to put the deal together? Right. You have an MBA. Do you know how to do it? I said, I can figure it out. <laughs> now, that was in 1986. That was just when LBOs were starting. There were no classes. There were no books about it. Yep. I went to USC library. I remember I was putting quarters in the copy machine, making copies of articles in newspapers about deals that are being made and how they're being done. Yep. And I was calling people, and I built the model, and I just saw, as a matter of fact, two days ago, my ex-CFO, we built the model on Lotus 1, 2, 3. You guys don't even know what Lotus 1, 2, 3 is. <laughs> you remember that? I said the, the pretty, Before Excel, you know? It took five minutes for the computer to download the, the, the model every time. Yeah. So, um, and we built more than 100 variations of that model. And based on that, we bought the company. Hmm. And... My boss came to me and he said, okay, good news and bad news. We were successful. We bought the company, but you work yourself out of a job. We're going to LBO. You know, we're not going to have your position. But, you know, we need a treasurer. Do you want to be a treasurer? Mm. And I said, I don't know anything about banking, but I can learn. And I took the position. So two takeaways from that. Number one, to your point, I mean, when you see opportunities... You know, be honest about what you right. know, what you don't know, yep. but take advantage of those opportunities and say, I'll try it. And if I fail, I mean, I'll fail, but, but, but try it and don't say, I can't do it, I'm afraid to do it. Right. But also, the, the person really I owe my career was that CFO who gave me the chance. Because I'll be honest with you, what I know today, 
I don't know if I would have hired myself. <laughs> because he took a big gamble. Right. I mean, I mean, we borrowed 90% of the deal. We borrowed $240 million. We had subsidiaries in 24 countries dealing with foreign currencies. That, you know, there were not the euros. Every country had different currencies. Yep. All the tax regulation, bank deals, and so forth. And you give it to someone who has no experience at it at all, that was quite a big gamble. Well, you obviously saw something and you knew you could do it. I appreciate that, but still, it was a big risk. Yep. I could have screwed up. So, but that's what really or put you, me in the executive. Or you could have said no. And, and, and you know, young people have to remember, every t- every, everybody who's ever done anything has had to have done it the first time once. Right? Yep. So there's always the first time. That's what so I tell you, people, exactly. You can't wait until you're an expert to, you know, to, to really try something. Well, some people are trying to say, you know what, okay, I'm going to go and work under someone for two, three years to learn how sure. they're doing it. I didn't have that luxury. Right. But, you know, it's like you sink or swim. And I've learned you go, and, I, and I've learned in my career, be honest and also ask people. And by the way, people love to talk about what they're doing. So the bankers were all calling me. I said, I want to meet you and stuff. And I was, said, sure, let's go to lunch. And I'll tell them, I don't know anything. Teach me. Right. And they were, you'll be surprised how willing they were and helpful they were. Yeah, that honesty and that... Um you know, just that, that asking people for help, mm-hmm. it, most people are going to raise to the occasion and actually give you that help. Exactly. So I think um, I like that, that you certainly didn't shy away from that. You, and you didn't shy. I think that entrepreneurs and successful people in general are curious. We want to learn more. We're not mm-hmm. satisfied. Well, like the guy you mentioned early in your career, he right. was satisfied. Like, yep. oh, hey, I'm yep. there. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm good. But I think people that really strive for more um, are curious and they, they want those opportunities to learn more. So when you see that in a young person like that guy saw it in you, you give them that chance to fail. Exactly. So to that point, you were able to satisfy that curiosity with lots of different industries. So hair care and personalized souvenirs. What did you find is sort of a commonality of success in those businesses? Because they're selling very different things to very different people. What were the core things that you started to look for and identify when you were thinking about a new venture? At, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. I mean, I'll be honest, some venture were, were a job yep. because I needed a job. Yep. But for me, the biggest thing is about the people that you'll be dealing with because the key to success is people and everything that you're doing. Products are not being generated on, on their own. Right. So it's the people you're dealing with, the integrity, you know, how, they treat, how they treat people. So that was very, very important for me. In some place, I know it was a short-term deal. Like, you talk about the hair product. The hair product company, I was hired to help the owner to sell the company. So we just need to package it. He had no experience in that. Mm-hmm. I had that experience. I helped him sell the company. And it was, I was a gun for hire, basically, yep. Yep. in that perspective. But, you know, other areas, I always try to understand, you know, what, you know who runs the company. Uh, integrity is very important to me because at the end of the day, the only thing we have is our reputation. That's right. You know? So I would never tarnish my reputation. One of, of, of the company that I worked for, the video conferencing, unfortunately went bankruptcy. And I was the CFO and I was the person in charge. And when you hear the term that someone, you know, closed the door and hang the key to the landlord, yeah. I was the last person who left the premises. But I still felt it was, it was the lowest point of my career. I left with high integrity. I never lied, mm-hmm. and I treat people with you know respect and honesty. And for me, that's key. Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough. It's easy to to have those platitudes on a plaque or something. But when a company's gone bankrupt, when there's limited money and lots of people that need a piece of it, it's tough 
to, well, it's tough to mean that it's maintain right. charity. Absolutely. Exactly. So good for you. Uh, we'll take the next student question. So there's a lot of information about your latest C-level positions in multiple companies. Was getting all your first job, or was your first job like? As I mentioned, the, be, being in, in the accounting group, that, that was my first, you know, my, my first position, and I was there for a year, basically in charge of uh, books of seven subsidiaries you know, around the world. And as I said, I realized I need to do it to learn and really to pay my dues for a year. So I was there for a year. And, and, and again, it's nothing bad. It just, it's just not me. You know? so. but we'll take a, the next student question. Okay, so how was your transition from your service as a soldier in the Israeli Defense Forces to becoming a student at CSU Northridge? Were there any particular aspects of your service that contributed to your drive and success as an entrepreneur? Yeah. I think I told you a little bit, you know, after the war, so I had the two-year gap between, between the service and, and, and when I joined the university, when I came, when I came to the U.S. Um, what, I've, what, I, what I've learned about... One thing from the military, and, and not that I'm a big proponent of, of, of military, and a matter of fact, I'm a pacifist, even though being in a war, is number one, we used to say in the army, every plan is subject to change. Because if your plan is, for example, we're going to attack this hill and we're going to run straight, if they're shooting at you, you're not going to keep on running straight. You'll dive to the side, you move. So I think that was, you know, that was an interesting lesson and, and you got to be very flexible and adaptable to, the, to you know the situation around you another thing I think that the army and growing up in Israel and especially being in the war gave me I'm pretty calm and people always said how you've been because I've been in a tough situation business situation you've never heard me raise my voice I've never screaming at people and people said how are you so calm I said you guys I was in a war as long as you're not shooting at me it's only business it's not personal. So when you put that in perspective, what's really important in life, or like you talk about, for me, the most important thing in my life is my family. It's not my job. It's not my work. I told it to my boss that they hire me and so forth. And you know what? Anyone who would tell me different, I don't know if I want to work for or, or I will hire. Right. So those are my priorities. And I think it put me that you know, perspective that, that, that I've been following since then. Would it talk a little bit more about some of the value that that financial person can add to an organization? So there's some financial people that are really good at looking in the rearview mirror. Like they will be able to tell you what happens. They're very precise. They can add. They can count the beans. It's the rarer financial person that can look through the windshield and tell you where you're going. You know, based on the history. And it's obviously something you did quite well. Maybe share um, some of the areas as you're. Is maybe we have someone in the audience or somebody watching who wants to go through the financial route. What are ways they can add value beyond? The numbers have to be right. right. What are ways they can add value beyond that? Well, I think in my mind, and, and, and it depends. When we say finance, finance is a big field. Yeah. You know, we usually think about finance. There is accounting. There is tax. There is internal audit. You know, there is control. And there is treasury, there is financial analysis, there are a lot of areas. So it depends what you want. And in each one of them, you can add a different value. So if you think about accounting, accounting is more looking at, at the rear mirror. Mm-hmm. You've got to close the books, you make sure they're accurate, and so forth. You can still, even though you're accounted, you can identify you know, areas for improvements. I mean, you see that a widget, someone has been paying 15 cents, and you can make it for 10 cents. This is someone else. You can still bring value. I think... 
again, that's not me. I think what, what I like, I'm not a creative, artistic creative person, but I think I'm very creative when it comes to business situation. Mm-hmm. And that's where the financial modeling, the financial analysis, uh, I think you can bring a lot of value because you can look at it, you can look at the various models and say, you, you know what, you guys, if we go and invest here, Look how much we'll generate. Or right now we're investing over here, and really we're not getting a big return. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really taking the financial knowledge and information that I, that, that, that I have and to show it to the other executive and help them you know, open, open their eyes. I don't think that a good CFO that can be a good CFO and just look, looking at the numbers. Right. You've got to understand the business. You've got to understand the strategy. You've got to be... Flexible. Yes, there are controls. You got to make sure that the books are accurate, and and, and, and and the company has the financial means that they need to run. But also, you sh- you'll be willing to say, you, can, I mean, you know what? In order to grow, we need to invest at times. Mm-hmm. The question is where to where's the place to invest? Right. But you cannot just come. Some some CFO can just say no, no spend. That, that's it. That's it. You know, yeah. and as I said, every plan is subject to changes. I mean, you have a budget. Most corporate America, you have an annual budget. You hear more and more corporate finance today. There is really not. You move away the annual budget. It's almost more just of a rolling to, budget. Exactly. Yeah. More of a rolling budget because things are changing. You you decide to do something and oil prices drop fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Are you still going to stick to the same you know plan that you have right. a year ago? Right. No. Yeah, and most of the startups I've been involved with, and I did have the title. I was never a very good CFO. I was always a salesperson, but I had the title. And so what, what I didn't like about that role was you were Dr. No. Like, you really were just basically people come and ask for stuff, and you would say no. So what I tried to do in my career, and I, and I was not a very good CFO, but I would try to say no, but here's how it, we can turn that into a yes. In other words, here's what we have to do differently. If we, if we as an organization think that's the right thing, here's what it would mean. Sort of. I, I, I have exactly the same philosophy, and I always told my team and so forth. I, it's very easy to say yes or no. So someone comes and asks you, can I do X? Yep. It's either say yes or no, and many people will say no just because I don't want to do the work. It's even easier. <laughs> it's even easier. I always said, what are you trying to achieve? Mm. And let's figure out a way together to achieve that within the restriction, the rules, and so forth. Yep. And then not only that, that you're bringing value, people will seek your input. Yep. Because then you're really an advisor. Then you're really helping. You're mm-hmm. part of the team, mm-hmm. and you're not just a police person on the side, you know, catching them and, you know, and right. spitting. When they break the know. rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, that, that's insightful for, I think, folks uh, at the beginning of their career, too. When you go in and ask for something, be sure you're making it clear what your what objective you is. Not just, can I do this? It's like, here's why I'm exploring this idea. And use this, you know, Seymour senior person as an advisor. Use mm-hmm. them as a consultant. How can we make this happen? Or do right. you even think it's a good idea? Exactly. I always tell people, Let's see, what are you trying to achieve and work backward? Mm-hmm. Even today with entrepreneur and start and said, people are saying, I want to do this, I want to do what do you, What's your end goal? What are you trying to do? And let's work backwards, see how do we get there. Yep, resources required, yeah. time, effort, energy. We'll take the next uh, student question. What are some of the challenges with overseeing so many diverse brands from UGG to Teva? How do you balance establishing a cohesive brand for Deckers while also making sure each line has a distinct image? That's that's an interesting situation to to deal with. But one thing with Decker that we've done is every brand stood on its own. So we were not trying to create a cohesive image for all the brands because they're very, very different. 
By the way, the consumer, when you think about consumer, don't really know what Deckers is. I don't know if you know what Deckers is, but you know what Ag is. You might know what Teva, you might know Sanuk or Hoka or so forth. So the way we ran it is really we focus on the, the, the strategy of the brand and let them develop that. So the way, but we ran it, in a, in a, we ran it, we're running it in, a, in my mind, and other companies, by the way, are doing it in some inefficient way. What a brand is responsible for is the strategy, the design, and the marketing. So they create the item, so they create the shoe, and they say, okay, this is who the shoe is going to be for, and here is how you're going to sell it, and here's the marketing. And then the actual de- the development of the shoe, the sourcing, buying it from, chi- from China or wherever we buy it from, the IT, the, the finance, legal, and all, the, all, all we call the back office, it's run on a, share, on, on a shared platform. So all the brands are sharing the same resources. Yeah. And it's a very efficient way also to run the business because when you acquire another brand, you don't need to, okay, if you acquire a brand, you don't have to go and hire two more accountants or two more HR people because you already have the infrastructure in place and you just bolt it onto that. And get the benefit of economies of scale. Exactly. And, yeah. It's a very scalable business because of that. Yep. Yeah. So you have, as I mentioned, over 25 M&A deals under your belt. That's often the exit that a younger entrepreneur will seek. Do you have any advice on how should a younger, younger entrepreneur start to package a company and position their company so when a bigger company comes knocking, the sales less, has less friction? Yeah. I tell people in situations like this, I said, focus less about the exit. Just perform. If you'll perform, the exit will come. Because when we did our first deal, we did it in 87, and I remember we were showing the team, you know, oh, you guys, if we'll be successful, here are the multiples and stuff like that. And we were very successful. We took the company in 87, and our sh- the share that we bought for a dollar, four years later, we, we went public at 14 and a half. Nice. So we did 14 and a half times in four years. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good return. Mm-hmm. But what we did, we didn't f- try to focus, it's going to be an IPO, it's going to be another leverage buyout, or you're going to sell to a strategic. Focus on building a, a growing and profitable business, yep. but also run it uh, with good control. So if it's an IPO, if you're selling it to a large company, make sure that your books are in order. Mm-hmm. Run it like a public company. And that will help you when the time comes. You don't have to go and start looking at the... We said sometimes to do smaller deal, it's more difficult than bigger deals. Right. Because you don't have all the, all the information. Yeah, yep. exactly. No, that's good advice. I've, I have said that as well. Where I'll say just run your company as if your exit was an IPO, yeah. even though that's unlikely, because everything you have to do to have an IPOable company is going to help you if you end up selling your business. Exactly. And also along the way, if you need bank financing and so forth, that would want you know, all the audited statement to see that you're running like a public company. Right. You should just run it as such. And, and really, running companies as a public company adds a, you know, a higher level of integrity. Yep. I, I always said, I slept very well at night, even though I was CFO of a big you know, a public company, because I knew that we were doing everything by the books. Right. Well, speaking of running a public company, so under your tenure, under your tutelage, you had a 7x growth. How did you balance the short-term demands of Wall Street? You mentioned before you got there, the UGG acquisition helped the seasonality of, of the sandal division. What were the things you did to keep Wall Street happy, um, but at the same time not violate your long-term strategic vision? Well, you try to, to, to be true to your long-term strategy. Number one, you have to believe in your strategy. That's number one. Number two, you've got to have a supporting board. Right. Uh, that, that believe in the strategy. Uh, the bulk of our compensation was really the pay for performance, and it was long term. So 
and 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 you got to be strong enough to believe in that and don't make the short-term decisions that will impact the business negatively mm-hmm. just to pacify Wall Street. Right. You know, I can't say that 100% of the time we were doing it, but we're really trying, you know, to do so. You got to you do have some responsibility for shareholders, but if you truly believe that we're doing the right thing and we should we should continue invest and we demonstrated it because Decker's so when I joined Decker's the share price was $11 and then it ran, that was you know after the split and then we went up all the way to 118 in, in it was 2011 2012 we went to 28 mm. so you can imagine people wrote us off and you know we 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 stuck to our to to our long term strategy yep we kept investing we kept growing we figured out how to improve our cost structure and which was mainly impacted by the raw material and you know and demonstrated that our strategy really holds and we were back last year to 99 now they're about 75 76 but you just have to believe in your strategy and 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 to execute it so were you, when you said performance-based, were you talking about employees being pay, paying the senior people on performance-based? Yeah, the senior See, people. That's even tougher to maintain when you hit a bump in the road because everybody loves performance pay when it's going great. Right. Nobody likes it when maybe yeah, they don't and, get the and bonus. And there were a couple of years we didn't get the bonuses. Yeah. But look, I've always, the first five years, six years, we were getting incredible bonuses. Yep, yep. And our, Every year, I told the team, you guys, you cannot count on it. Right. That's a danger because right. people do count on it. Yes. So you cannot count on that because I, I, since the day that I came to the company, I said, this gray hair didn't come from nothing. I mean, <laughs> we'll hit a bump along the road. Trust me. Yeah. It's not are we, it's when, and right. how we're going to steer out of that. Right. And that's, that's, that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. Well, I should remind people every time, I, every quarter that I would pay a bonus. It's called a bonus for a reason. Okay? It's not part of your base compensation. So. But when you pay it six, seven years in a row, yeah, yeah, yeah. big numbers, yeah. people... Their people lifestyles adapt, exactly. yeah, whether you want it to or not. Exactly. We'll take uh, another student question. On your profile on the Outdoor Industry Association, you mentioned that one of the biggest issues the outdoor industry is facing regards getting the next generation of kids excited about the outdoors and outdoor activities in light of video games and other media that regards them passive. My question is, have you made progress towards this issue? Yeah, we've started to address that because when I was in the outdoor industry, uh, we were looking at the room and we were looking at, 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 at who we were serving and the outdoor industry is really a white middleman who are going hiking and, and, and fishing. And when you look at the, the demography today, that's not what it is. I mean, number one, there's the younger generation, uh, there are minorities, and there are people who, for them, the outdoor might be a coldest, the end of the coldest, the sack, you know, skateboarding or climbing a tree. So how do you, you know, attract those people? So uh, in, in the outdoor industry, we, all, we have a foundation and we created what they call the Outdoor Nation, and basically reaching the, to students like yourself on high school and, and colleges, and try to create you know outdoor uh, clubs and awareness for the outdoor, which were co-sponsored by the member of, uh, of of the outdoor industry. You know, giving let's say shoes, backpack, creating activities and things and things like that. Are they there yet? No. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, it, and that's going to be going. You know, for a long time, the whole the whole industry is 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 being uh, in the midst of a change. And one thing which I'm pleased that we've done, at least we're recognizing it and trying to trying to address that. 
So I'm curious, you had nine years now to look back and you didn't have footwear experience, you didn't have a lot of fashion experience. I'm sure you came in with preconceptions. Now that you can look back, what, what do you kind of laugh and say, wow, I did not expect that, that surprised me. Like what about that, that um, Decker's experience, just you wouldn't have called it? When I joined Decker's, I had four pair of shoes. Or two, of the, <laughs> two, two of them were flip-flops. Now I got 80 pair of shoes in my closet and I gave most of them away. So <laughs> the, the thing that, that, that surprised me the most was the growth. Yeah. Because both when our CEO that who hired me after a year after I came and I and we we put, I, I give an example our goals were within five years to be a half a billion and ten years to be a billion. Wow. And we what we less than five years we were at the billion. Yep. So the growth we knew it's going to come with it and it's going to be that rapid. Mm-hmm. And what came with that? But again, it's less about the numbers because as I said in the footwear industry you can have one shoe that everybody wants and you call the factories in China and they ship it to you and you sell, you sell it to Nordstrom it's more uh, the complexity of, 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 of the business mm-hmm. and what I mean by that when we came the company was basically what we call a domestic wholesaler we got the order from REI or from Nordstrom we yep. called the factory in China they ship it to us and we ship it to them and that was about it yep. uh, international business was only about 10% all through distributors no stores, very limited, I mean, e-commerce. And now the company, a third of the business is international. And most of the international business is, is company-owned, so there are subsidiaries, no distributors. Mm-hmm. So, for example, when, when I came, we had two people in Europe. Now there are 500 people. Wow. So think about hiring those people, creating, renting offices, yep. starting subsidiaries in different countries, credit line. I mean, all the things. So that, that's been... That's been fun, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, all that. Building over 150 stores. Absolutely. Did you get a lot of pushback on the going retail? Because you were doing some of that at the time when everyone was saying brick and mortar is dead. It's all online. You'd be crazy to open a store. And you guys were actually going counterintuitively, which is not what people are saying now, by the way. They're saying you need both. But. Right. No, well, we, we're not getting a lot of pushback because, number one, even when you think about 140 stores, on a $1.8 billion company, it's not, and that's mm. worldwide, mm. which about a third of them are in China. Oh, okay. In China, there's no wholesale business. So it's not, uh, it's not that many stores. I mean, look at Coach. They have, what, over 1,000 stores. I mean, look at the guests and so forth. What the stores represent, and we opened, the first store we opened when we came, it was in Soho, New York, and the, really the main reason to do it is to showcase what AGS is all about. Because... And eight years ago, when you thought about Ag, you thought about you know the young girl in the miniskirt with, with the classic boots. And you walk to our store and you see the, the, the variety of the product offering. And people said, I didn't know you make this. I didn't know you make that. Mm-hmm. And they start buying. And that's how we expand you know, the, the, the brand. And that's where the growth you know, came from. But without the stores, it was really showcasing the brand. Right. And, but also, our, the, the, the stores are very profitable. And when you think about that, you know, we can have a store in every key metropolitan around the world, 140 stores. We're still not in, in every city in the world. Right. So we're not getting that much pushback because also, again, the returns are very good on, on, on the stores. And we're really controlling the balance of growing it. Yep. And that's the, for us uh, folks that might not understand distribution all the well, you're, you're constantly going to have to manage um, channel conflict. 
you know, so people that are distributing for you versus right. selling online versus, and I'm sure that's that's dicey. So that's why this issue of stores, you have to be careful on how aggressively you, you roll that out. But but if you treat, you know, what's happening today, your vendors, you and your customers, you're all partners and you're all competitors. Mm-hmm. A lot of our factory owners in, in China have their own brands now. Mm-hmm. They have footwear brands. Mm-hmm. So they're making shoes for themselves right, right. while they're making shoes for us. Think about Nordstrom. Nordstrom buys shoes from us. Nordstrom has their own private label. They have their own e-commerce. Yep. So they are both our best partner and a competitor. But as long as you treat them with respect, right. we don't, the, the, listen, the Ag brand, there is a, the, we don't discount the product. Right. So you don't sell to, to Nordstrom at a higher price that you sell in our stores, then you don't put them in a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got a very healthy relationship. So as you grew on that, that huge growth over the nine years that you, that you were um, the COO, how much debate was there about Santa Barbara? You guys made a huge commitment to it ultimately, but was there debate, or was it, or were you guys just convinced that Santa Barbara is a place where you can grow a substantial company, and, and by, by golly, you're going to do it? No, I think when, when we looked at, uh, at expanding, when we realized we were, when we came here, we were in one small building, and then we, we end up, before we moved to the campus, at about four or five separate buildings, which was very inefficient. Mm-hmm. So when we made the decision, okay, we need to build a new headquarters. Where should it be? Uh, you know, you owe it to yourself to evaluate other options. Mm-hmm. And we thought about, okay, what will happen if we move out of Santa Barbara? Right. And we've done a, a survey, and we looked, and 95% of our employees were living in Santa Barbara. Mm. So we were quite concerned that if we move out of Santa Barbara, right. Um, we would lose a lot of, you know, the brain power, and, and, and it will really hurt the company. So we decided to stay in the Santa Barbara area. So we looked at three areas. We looked at, Camar- at um, Carpinteria, Santa Barbara, and Goleta. We really wanted to be in, in Carpinteria for the sole reason mm-hmm. to be closer to Ventura, mm-hmm. so yep. you can attract people from there. Yep. But unfortunately, I mean, the challenge here, there's not land. Right. And we didn't have the time to find the land and to get the permits because that would take three years. And the campus that we found already had the permits for the buildings. Uh. So it was an easier decision uh, to go with the option to, to, to grow. So we've, I'm very proud and pleased with, with what we've built and how I it came out. I think it's a out. showcase for Santa Barbara. I don't know if any of you guys have had a chance. It's really right down the street, and I'm sure they're hiring, and they'd love UCSB grads. And they also, just, they also have a store, so you can go and buy shoes. Yes. So. A wonderful cafeteria. and just yeah. It's, Gym, it's yeah. very much, it's very Google-ish. It's just a, a really, really um, well done. Yeah. We'll take another question from a student. Okay, so you mentioned um, taking risks with new positions and kind of learning by doing without much prior experience. But when you have, whenever you start working in a new sector, whether it's footwear, food, et cetera, um, what strategies have you developed for pinpointing industry gaps, and how do your management strategies change in order to mi- meet industry-specific needs? Yeah. Well, uh, when, when every new company that I joined, first of all, uh, I tried to learn the industry. Number one, understand the company, how the company operates, and what, what, what the industry is, how the industry operates, and what role we are playing, what's our place within the industry. And then 
taking the financial skills that, 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 you know, that I have, identify, okay, here are the areas. Right now we are playing in this niche. Like, for example, we talked about, you know, Decker's AG. We were looking and said, if we had just to stay with one, you know, like, like only the fall items, we wouldn't have grown to, to, to the way we are. And, and that's, and by the way, that was a collective offer, effort of all of us. I don't want to take, you know, the, the credit. We looked at it and said, this is where the direction we need to take. So how do you build a strategy to get there? How do you get from here to there? And as, and as we said before, we said, okay, five years from now, we want to be here. Let's look backward and see the roadmap that we'll have, you know, to, to go there. And also look at, at, at the industry and where, where, where is the industry going? And are we, and, and that's what we've done also with Decker's. You talked about the stores. I don't know if you're familiar with the, t- the term omnichannel. Omnichannel is the, it's the term that they're using today. That's where basically the consumer today does not care where they buy the item from. They want to buy it when they want to buy it, where they want to buy it, and, 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 and when. So I'm walking the street on my iPhone and I see something. I want to look at it. I want to walk to the store and buy it or ship it to my house or return it. So you got to have, we identify, we saw that, that trend, and that's why we developed the stores, the e-commerce, and also the infrastructure to support it. So you can go to, to today on our website and say, oh, they have, I'm looking for this item. They have it in inventory in that store. I can go and, and get it. Or Nordstrom, by the way, does a very good job at that. Nice. You know? So something along, along the line that they're doing. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how you, since you, you're quote retired, but you're still on boards and, and, and certainly working. How did you come to co-found Dash Brands? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on doing business in China in 2015. And has it changed from when you first started doing business in China? Yeah, well, the, the, Dash, uh, the Dash brand, um, I'll tell you a little bit about, about it. It's a prime example of the unplanned journey. Uh, our son, he, he went to Boston College. He, he, he was a communication and, and Asian studies major. And he did a year abroad in Japan. When you finish college, you want to get international experience. And I said, as much as you like Japan, China is the future. Mm. That's about 12 years ago. Go to China. So I introduced to someone. He got a job. He worked in Beijing. He met a person that got the rights for the subway restaurants in Shanghai. And that person didn't have much experience about raising money or starting company. Our son put us together, and we co- I found another person. We gave him the seed money, and we co-found the company. And fast forward, because of that, we got the rights for Domino Pizza mm. in Shanghai and Beijing. So that's what the, the, the Dash the name of the company is. There's a few is. people there, I think. <laughs> yeah. So we sold the subway because we just want to concentrate on Domino. And as of today, we have 70 Domino Pizza stores. We're opening four stores per month. And we're looking at, you know, growing very rapidly and, and, and to either go public or do something with wow. that. So this is something. Here's an opportunity. My son introduced me to someone. I use my financial business skills, people that I know. We put a deal together. And today, that can be a very, very big and valuable yeah. company. So I'm yep. a co-founder. I'm still on the board and so forth. Um, changes in China. China is amazing. I'm, I'm fascinated. In the last 15 years or so, I've been going to China almost every, th- every three months. And it's amazing how fast and, and it's, it's progressing over there. Uh, number one, the middle class is growing significantly. So that's one of the reasons that American brands or international brands are doing so well. 
Domino Pizza, mm -hmm. they, lo they love American brands. Mm -hmm. Also because most of them are growing, I mean, are working, they have more, more, more funds, they don't cook at home anymore. Right. They won't fast food like what they're doing on the way home. They want to get on their phone and order a pizza to be delivered in, you know, in 25 minutes. Yep. Uh, the sophistication level is increasing. The local talent is increasing, but also it's becoming very, very expensive. So while before in the past, I mean, you'll hire someone, you pay them relatively small salaries, especially in the executive right. or the managerial levels, very difficult to find. Because there is not a big depth, there's not of experience. Mm -hmm. You only have about 20 years of experience. So the people with experience, the good people, are very highly sought of, demand a lot of money. There is less loyalty. I mean, if someone would come and you know, give them a better deal, they, they will move. Yep. Uh, also, on the sourcing side, what you're seeing, uh, China is running out of workers. Mm. Yeah, wow. believe it or I not, never you know, 1.3 billion people wow. in certain industries. <laughs> wow. Because with the one-child policy, a lot of the young generation that go to college, they don't want to work in manual labor. Mm -hmm. So they want the white-collar jobs. Right. Or even with the industry, they want to work for an apple. They don't want to make shoes. The migrant workers, the, 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 the manufacturing industry in China started initially in southern China. The main reason was closer to Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had the migrant workers that coming from, you know, the, the, the central or the north and go home a couple of times a year. Now they don't, they don't want to migrate anymore. So the factories are moving more interland. So are they seeing immigration from other Asian countries to pick up those jobs? Not yet, but what, what you're seeing, the factories like well before, like 100% of our business was coming from uh, shoes coming from China. Now only about three quarters. Mm. The rest is coming from Vietnam is picking up a lot. Cambodia, Burma, Myanmar is starting. So you see we're doing in uh, Latin America and El Salvador. Mm -hmm. And we're even trying a little bit in the U.S. So hard, thank you so much. Thank That's you. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.